0: The digestive system is known also as the gastrointestinal system and is composed by a long tube, a long tube known as the GI tract, also known as the digestive tube, enteric tube, or alimentary canal. All those terms are for the same thing meaning that it's a long tube that starts in the mouth and continues all the way to the anus going through thoracic cavity and abdominal cavity. And next to all this tube which is specialized in different parts dilated parts they are longer than others long diameter different types of cells but at the end is a long tube. And Together with this tube, we will find organs called accessory organs that help in the functions of this GI tract. Main function of the digestive tube is digestion, so processing all the food that we eat. And these accessory organs are teeth, tongue, salivary glands, liver, gallbladder, and pancreas. So what we're going to do is study the tube and then the accessory organs describing the functions of each of these segments. Here we have all these organs, part of the digestive tube and the accessory organs. If we start um, in the mouth, the next segment is the pharynx following the pharynx we have the esophagus which is in the thoracic cavity the diaphragm is separated thoracic from abdominal cavity so the esophagus goes through the diaphragm and connects to the stomach which is a dilated part of this tube the stomach connects to the small intestine the small intestine has three parts duodenum, jejunum and ileum. So these three parts are small intestine. Small intestine connects to the large intestine and the large intestine is composed by cecum transverse uh, ascending column transverse column descending column, sigmoid column, and then the final part, rectum, anal canal, and anus. That is a long tube. If we go back to the development during the embryonic life, we will see that this is a long tube, just like the esophagus. Then, little by little, it gets longer, it starts to get twisted, and specialized in different functions, the stomach gets dilated, different layers are added, different cells are developed, specialized in digestion, production of enzymes, and so, and at the end, we have this final conformation. So that's the two. The accessory organs include the tongue, teeth, salivary glands uh, are three, parotid, submandibular, and sublingual glands. Liver, gallbladder, and pancreas. And that finishes all the components of the digestive system: alimentary canal plus accessory organs. What is the function of the digestive system? Six basic processes related with. Digestion. Digestion is the term that we use for all these processes. Now we will use the same word for some steps, but in general, all the process of conversion of food into the basic elements, all the processes that involve that, is called digestion. So these six processes are, the first one, everything starts with ingestion, which is when we put the food in our mouth. Second process, secretion, water, acid, buffers, enzymes that are going to be secreted into the GI tract, into the inside, into the lumen of the tube. Third process, mixing and propulsion. The food will move along the tube. It will move forward and it will mix by different movements of the smooth muscle of the wall of the tube. Four process digestion that includes mechanical and chemical breakdown of the food. Mechanical digestion starts in the mouth with chewing, mastication, and continues in the stomach. Chemical digestion by means of enzymes, it starts in the mouth. We have salivary amylase that will break down carbohydrates. And it will continue in the small intestine. One of the main steps is this one, the number five, which is absorption. Because all the breakdown of food, mechanical and chemical, will convert the food into the basic elements, the basic nutrients, that will be absorbed through the wall of the GI tract to the blood and to the lymph carbohydrates and amino acids to the blood lipids to the lymph and finally defecation defecation which is the elimination of feces containing all material that was not digested fiber and chemicals that we don't process, we don't use, we don't absorb, they will be eliminated with the feces. So all the two, the alimentary canal, plus liver, pancreas, will be responsible for a bigger process that involves this set of chemical reactions that we know as metabolism or metabolic processes. And at some point, I think we mentioned, metabolism includes two components, anabolism and catabolism. Catabolism, where the larger molecules molecules are broken down into smaller molecules. That happens in the mouth, stomach, duodenum. This is what we call digestion, actually. It's catabolic reactions. We have long carbohydrates that will turn into units of glucose. Larger molecules into smaller molecules. And anabolism is what happens in the liver. Because all these basic nutrients, elements, like glucose, which is a monosaccharide, the glucose will get to the liver and it will be getting together with other molecules of glucose to form glycogen, which is a polysaccharide. Many units of glucose. So anabolism, we are building up. Same thing with amino acids. Amino acids are absorbed by the wall of the intestine and they go to the liver. And in the liver, we will produce proteins, long chains of amino acids that we need for different purposes. So digestive system has to do with the metabolism, catabolism, anabolism, and actually that's the part that follows the next chapter, I think, is metabolism and nutrition, where we will study to the detail all these chemical reactions, carbohydrates, how they are uh, processed, what type of molecules, Mm and and more details about that. Mechanical digestion is very important. Mechanical digestion are movements that enhance, improve, make easier the breaking down of food. Mastication, chewing, for that we need our teeth in good condition, swallowing, without swallowing there is no chance that the food get into the esophagus, into the stomach, and mixing of the food. All these happen in the first part, mouth pharynx mouth and pharynx peristalsis peristalsis is a pattern of contraction that we see in the smooth muscle GI tract the walls of the GI tract contains smooth muscle and that smooth muscle contracts in a pattern called peristalsis. That peristalsis is defined as a wave of contractions that start in the pharynx, in the upper portion of the esophagus and keep traveling down along the esophagus, pushing the foot forward. That's a pattern of smooth muscle contraction called peristalsis. And that has to do with mechanical digestion because it's mixing and bringing the food down to the stomach For where the chemical process or chemical digestion will start. Actually, the chemical digestion starts in the mouth. Chemical digestion is basically hydrolysis of molecules, hydrolysis of polysaccharides, hydrolysis of polypeptides, and lipids. The fats. They are broken down into the basic components, fatty acids and glycerol. Carbohydrates will be broken down from polysaccharides into monosaccharides because the small intestine will absorb only monosaccharides. Proteins are broken down into polypeptides and the polypeptides into amino acids. One example is shown here. Hydrolysis of sucrose will give, as a result, two monosaccharides. So this is a disaccharide, and it will turn into two monosaccharides. Sucrose is glucose plus fructose. And the small intestine can only absorb glucose, monosaccharide. So anything that we eat, carbohydrate, it must be broken down until the basic unit of glucose so we can utilize it. Now, let's see the components of the tube. This tube has different components and if we go to the histology and see what is the structure of that tube, the walls of that tube, we will see that it has four layers of different types of tissue. Here we have epithelial tissue, connective tissue, muscular tissue, and nervous tissue. The four basic types of tissues are found in the wall of the GI tract. One thing is uh, the GI tract, all these two, it has the same four layer arrangement all along. From the lower esophagus to the anal canal, it has four layers. And those four layers are listed here. The mucosa, you can see in the picture, the innermost, closer to the lumen, to the inside of the tube, is called the mucosa. Second layer, submucosa. Third layer, muscularis layer. And the fourth is the serosa in that order, mucosa, submucosa, muscularis, and serosa. the mucosa, the innermost layer has three components the epithelium, lamina propria and muscularis mucosae the epithelium in the, the GI tract, in the tube, is of two types only. Esophagus is stratified squamous, epithelium. Stomach, small intestine, large intestine is simple columnar. What is the lamina propria? Lamina propria is connective tissue, it's areolar connective tissue. Remember from epithelial tissue, when we studied epithelial tissue, we said all types of epithelium rest on a layer of connective tissue. Areolar connective tissue. It's the same here. Epithelium, the layer underneath, is areolar connective tissue. In the case of the digestive tube, it's known as lamina propria. Also, part of the mucosa, we have a thin layer of smooth muscle called muscularis mucosae longitudinal layers, longitudinal layer of smooth muscle or a thin layer. So that's, those are the three components of the mucosa. Now the second layer is a submucosa, mucosa connective tissue also, dense, irregular, mixed with areolar connective tissue. And here's where we will find blood vessels, nerves, In large amounts. Also, this is a place where we see glands. See glands in the submucosa. Like in the case of the duodenum, the duodenum, which is the first portion of the small intestine, it contains glands in the submucosa. We will see that when we get to that point. Third layer is the muscularis the musculaires. One more thing about the submucosa is that, and I mentioned this, we have blood vessels, artery, veins, and in yellow, nerves. There is a network of nerve endings in this running in the submucosa, which is called submucosal plexus, or plexus of Meissner. Well, muscularis, the the, the muscularis layer is composed by two sub-layers of smooth muscle. So, the fibers are arranged in two different directions in the muscularis uh, layer. Circular muscle, which is inner, and longitudinal, which is outer. Circular inner, longitudinal, outer. And, since they are in different directions, when they contract... They will cause different effects on the tube. The circular layers will squeeze the food, and the longitudinal layers will just make it contract and elongate. And that helps for two things they push the food forward, and it helps to mix the food inside. That's the reason why there are two layers in different directions circular, inner circular, and outer longitudinal. And here, in the middle of this muscular muscle, uh, muscular layer, we'll see another network of nerve endings called myenteric plexus, or plexus of our back. This myenteric plexus and the submucosal plexus are nerve endings, but if we go and trace them back, here we have this, that belongs to the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. All digestive tube, the contraction of the smooth muscle is controlled by autonomic nervous system. The secretions of glands in the submucosa it is also controlled by the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, autonomic nervous system. So that's why. And the fourth layer, the outermost, is called the serosa, which we will call later Peritoneum. Peritoneum. And the serous membrane, cirrhosa or serous membrane, we mentioned briefly this when we did epithelial tissue in 48. We said serous membranes, pleura, pericardium, peritoneum. And all of them have the same components. It's a layer of epithelium, simple squamous epithelium. In this case, it's called mesothelium, plus a thin layer of areolar connective tissue. So, in the lab, the, uh, to the, this week is uh, we have a lot of slides where we have to identify these four layers, these four layers, in different segments: esophagus, the stomach, uh, small intestine, duodenum, large intestine, all along the tube. Yes. Uh, what, what Oh, peritoneum, peritoneum. Peritoneum. Now some slides here to show um, how these layers are arranged. Here we have a, a, a slide showing these four layers. This part is the mucosa, all that is the mucosa the epithelium goes in this direction and here this is a stomach the epithelium goes having many folds like this up and down up and down a very thin layer of lamina propria and this thin layer is muscularis mucosa all those three components of the mucosa Then we have submucosa, ariolar connective tissue with the presence of blood vessels. We see blood vessels, arteries, and veins here. And muscularis, inner circular and outer longitudinal. So these are the two layers. Goes in this way, this way, and this way. And the fourth layer is very thin, it is pointed by the green arrow. It's just the epithelium, which is simple squamous, plus a thin layer of areolar connective tissue underneath. So those are the four layers that you have to identify in different segments of the um, digestive tube, and in each segment it will have some different characteristics. For the case of the esophagus, we see it here. The mucosa, submucosa, muscularis externa, and for esophagus, there is no cirrhosa. There is a layer of areolar connective tissue known as adventitia. Why? Because the esophagus is in the thoracic cavity. The esophagus is not in the abdominal cavity. Organs in the abdominal cavity, they have cirrhosa they have peritoneum. The esophagus is in the thoracic cavity, so there's no serosa or peritoneum. Instead, it is located in the posterior mediastinum, right next to the bronchi, the aorta, and all that is surrounded by every other connective tissue. So that's called adventitia. In the case of the esophagus, the muscularis externa especially if it's higher in the esophagus close to the pharynx it is very thick and it's very thick and sometimes we can see skeletal muscle because the pharynx contains skeletal muscle and so there's a transition between the pharynx and the esophagus from skeletal muscle to smooth muscle. Some details about these layers and some functions and things to highlight. The mucosa we said contains epithelium resting on the loose connective tissue, areolar connective tissue called lamina propria. Pharynx esophagus and the anus is stratified squamous epithelium non-keratinized, non-keratinized stratified squamous epithelium. Pharynx esophagus and anus. And the rest, stomach and intestines, small and large, is simple columnar epithelium. Stratified squamous because of protection. Pharynx, esophagus, deals with pieces, big pieces of food. And it needs to be protected. The stomach, small intestine, is most for absorption, digestion and absorption, secretion so that there's no need for many layers of cells, only one layer is enough. And among the cells, among the cells of the simple columnar, we will have specialized cells, glandular cells that produce mucus and fluid of different types, containing enzymes and hormones, local hormones, paracrine signals. The lamina propria, again, every other connective tissue, sometimes we will see in the lamina propria lymphoid tissue, which is known as malt, mucosa-associated lymphatic tissue. And this is supposed to protect us. The digestive tube, since we eat food that many times is contaminated, I would say all food contains bacteria, it's just a, not enough to make us sick. Uh, but this is a mechanism of protection. The bacteria that we eat with our food, especially the salads, we have a large number of bacteria. Even after you buy it in a well-prepared, and closed, and medic, and, so we still have bacteria. And your body will protect you against those bacteria. Those bacteria will try to cross the walls, and they will meet immune cells in the lamina propria known as MALT. Yes. Um, just a little confused like on the last slide, you said the lamina propria uh, has loose connective tissue. Yeah. And this one has areolar connective tissue, or is it just mixed, or...? No, if you remember the classification of connective tissue, uh-huh. the category is loose connective oh, tissue, yes. and uh, there are two subcategories, which are areolar and adipose. So, saying loose is just in general, being more specific is areola. Okay, so just remember both, or something? Hmm? Remember both? What? As, like, it just as areolar, basically? Yeah, yeah, areola is more specific for that. But saying loose is okay also. Okay. And under the lamina propria, we have this thin layer of smooth muscle called muscularis mucosae. And this muscularis mucosae has as as a purpose to contract the mucosa. And if you see inside the stomach, inside the intestines, there are many foldings. The inside have like wrinkles, but those wrinkles are thanks to the contraction of this muscular mucosa. It's like provides more surface for absorption or exposition, exposure to the food and the cells. Submucosa, areolar connective tissue, and here is where we find blood vessels, lymphatic vessels. Here is where the lacteals are running, these lymphatic vessels that absorb the fat from the intestines. And the extensive network of neurons known as the submucosal plexus. This submucosal plexus, they will connect to cells and glands that secrete mucus, they secrete enzymes, and hormones. Muscularis, the muscularis layer at the initial part of the tube and the final part of the tube may contain some skeletal muscle, like when we swallow the food, pharynx contains skeletal muscle. That's a voluntary movement, but then it turns into the esophagus and there's a transition skeletal muscle into smooth muscle, and then finally at the end, the final portion of the tube, the anus, the smooth muscle turns into skeletal muscle because there will be control of defecation by the sphincters, which are voluntary skeletal muscle. But the rest of the tube is just smooth muscle, and it's arranged in the way that we described in the pictures, inner circular and outer longitudinal layers. And when they contract, they will provide different patterns of movement in the intestine. And the last layer, serosa slash adventitia. Why? Because adventitia is connective tissue surrounding the organ. And we see that only in, around the esophagus. Adventitia is present around the esophagus only. Because it's in the thoracic cavity, it's not in the abdominal cavity the rest of the organs that are inside the abdominal cavity will be surrounded by serosa, which is mesothelium, simple squamous, plus thin layer of irregular connective tissue. Peritoneum, we'll see the peritoneum and how this uh, peritoneum, uh, peritoneum works, uh, protecting the organs, wrapping the organs. Here we see the cirrhosa, for instance, and all this pink layer is the cirrhosa. And if we follow it, we'll see that it goes in this way, but then in the other way, when it goes around the tube and it gets to the other side, it will continue in this way, and here. And in between these two layers, there is this structure called mesentery that is holding blood vessels and nerves and it's actually holding the intestines and the organs to the wall of the abdominal cavity. That's what the peritoneum is. layers of cirrhosa that wrap the organs and keep them attached to the abdominal wall. Some other uh, slides are shown here. The epithelium, this epithelium is Stratified squamous, therefore, this is what part of the tube? (coughs) Esophagus. Just by the epithelium, you can tell. This is the only place of the tube where we find stratified squamous. Lamina propria, muscularis mucosa, the submucosa, the muscular, or muscularis externa, inner circular longitudinal outer, and adventitia, all this white part to that side. Innervation of the digestive tube. When we did nervous system, we described as a separated system, the enteric nervous system. The enteric nervous system is composed by the plexus that we mentioned, submucosal plexus and myenteric plexus. These two network of nerves are part of the enteric nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system also participates here because the autonomic nervous system connects to the enteric nervous system. The autonomic nervous system, central nervous system, controls and regulates the function of the intestine. But the intestine has its own network of nerves known as the enteric nervous system. Both are connected, not, they're, not, they're not separated completely. They are not isolated, they are interconnected. And in this picture we can see how this works. The enteric nervous system is shown as this blue box containing the both plexi, myenteric plexus, and submucosal plexus. And you can see connections here. Look at the red connections and the purple connections. They are, ma- they are making a loop. Like, the mucosal epithelium, epithelium of the mucosa, is connected to sensory neurons. Sensory neurons that, let's say, if there is a distension, if there is... A chemical irritation of the mucosa or epithelium that will be that will be detected by the sensory neuron, and the sensory neuron connects to the submucosal plexus, and also if we follow it, it also connects to the myenteric plexus. So there's a loop here. If there is a afferent signal, an input. Irritation inside the intestine. Well, that signal will get to the submucosal plexus, which will react, perhaps, ordering glands to secrete mucus. That's the action of the submucosal plexus. And it goes back as a motor neuron, a loop here. Or, it may work on the myenteric plexus, and the myenteric plexus will send a signal to the muscle to contract. And the signal here comes for contraction of the walls, contraction of the smooth muscle. And that's actually how this digestive tube works. For instance, when we swallow the food, the food gets into the esophagus and the esophagus is distended, dilated by the food. That is the input. The sensory neuron detects that and the loop goes back to the smooth muscle and the smooth muscle contracts. That's enteric nervous system working. It's local loops. But also, if you see the sensory neuron, it is also connected to autonomic nervous system, central nervous system. So there is an input also to the central nervous system, by which the response will be parasympathetic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, that will connect to either one, myenteric or submucosal plexus. That's how the enteric nervous system and autonomic nervous system work together. peritoneum this is a dissection of <coughs> what is an animal pig or rat I think yeah all along the tube, from the esophagus stomach small intestine large intestine all the two if you see this picture well, this is intestine. And you can see the surface is shiny. This is a kidney. And also, you can even see the light reflecting on the surface. Because these organs are covered by this membrane called peritoneum. And also, all this, you see part of the membrane here. All this, you see all shiny. All that is peritoneum. Peritoneum. If you did the section of this, then you can remember that membrane inside the abdominal cavity. Well, the peritoneum is a layer of, as we were saying, cirrhosa, simple squamous epithelium, called mesothelium, and underneath, a supporting layer of areolar connective tissue. Here we have the mesothelial cells, simple squamous epithelium and the areolar connective tissue. And then right under we have the organ. So this pink and orange is the organ. So this membrane is covering the organs, the cirrhosa or peritoneum. So the peritoneum is a membrane a membrane that is wrapping most of the organs of the abdominal cavity and pelvic cavity. Also. And it contains two layers, the visceral peritoneum and the parietal peritoneum. The visceral peritoneum is the cirrhosa, is the one that is wrapping the organs, the one that we see under the microscope, the one that we see shining on that picture of the dissected animal. It is wrapping the organs. And the parietal peritoneum is the same membrane, but that portion that is covering and lining the walls of the cavity. To go back to this picture, this will be parietal peritoneum. And visceral peritoneum will be the one wrapping the intestine, wrapping the organ. Sagittal section along the abdominal cavity, we'll show this. Many loops of small intestine, jejunum and ileum, many loops, and if you see all those loops, they are surrounded by peritoneum. They're surrounded by peritoneum in this way, and it's attached to the posterior wall. It's another loop here, and attached to the wall. All the loops on smooth intestine, they are surrounded by peritoneum and attached to the wall, posterior wall. So all the membrane surrounding the loops is visceral peritoneum, and the membrane that is lining the posterior abdominal cavity is parietal peritoneum. Also, anterior abdominal cavity, when we open the abdominal cavity, we go through layers of muscles, rectus abdominis, uh, we get deeper and we'll find in the inside of the wall anterior wall, it is covered by parietal peritoneum, which we see lining here, the anterior wall. And that determines a cavity, which is called abdominal cavity or peritoneal cavity. This is a diagram of how this looks, it's just a diagram. This represents the visceral organs, and the yellow is a peritoneum. So this part wrapping the organ is a visceral peritoneum and the part of the membrane that is lining the cavity or the wall of the cavity is called the parietal peritoneum. And in between, well we have a cavity a cavity that contains some amount of fluid, not much, some amount of fluid And we can see here again, this dissected animal. This membrane that we see, almost transparent, containing blood vessels and nerves, that is, that will be one of these reflections of the base of the intestines. This is called mesentery. In one of the slides we saw that mesentery. It is holding the intestine to a common origin in the posterior wall. Questions to this point? Uh, yes? The view on that image, Is that, hmm? is that an anterior view? This is an anterior view, correct. That is an anterior view. So, we don't see, we have removed the abdominal, I mean, the anterior wall, and we see it from uh, the front. Yeah. Okay, let's have a break. alright so peritoneum is organized in a way that it will determine the cavity and there are folds of this membrane and if this folds they have a specific name because they they are located around specific organs and they serve certain functions those foldings the folds are called Greater momentum, there's a greater momentum, there's a lesser momentum, falciform ligament, mesentery, and mesocolon. All of them are folds of this membrane around certain organs, and we'll see some of them. The greater momentum, the greater momentum is like an apron. Here in this picture, you see this is a human body and all this yellow that you see here is actually a flap. It's like an apron covering all the abdominal organs. That is the greater momentum. If we lift this apron, then we'll have this picture here, like a flap. It is a fold of the peritoneum. The peritoneum comes down and then reflects over itself and it returns. And it traps, it traps fat tissue, adipose tissue, blood vessels, lymph nodes. Uh, This greater omentum is the first thing we find when we open the abdominal cavity in surgery. That's the first thing we find covering all the organs. We don't see the intestines right away. They are covered by the greater omentum as in this picture right here. It is very important because in cases of uh, an intestinal perforation for some reason, like someone has an appendicitis or an infection that perforates intestine, there's a hole in the intestine. And what's inside the intestine? It's intestinal content, it's food, it's feces sometimes. And that leaks to the abdominal cavity. The greater momentum, one of the functions is to enclose leakage point encapsulated and will not allow the contents to spread in the abdominal cavity. So that's the reason why it's like an apron covering all these abdominal viscera. That is the, the image of the greater momentum. This is not human, this is a dissected animal. But you can see how you can hold it with the hands and it's a membrane with some fat tissue there. And if we just put it back, it will be covering all the intestines. The greater momentum contains fat. And this is a picture that shows when we have excessive amount of adipose tissue, like we see in this picture, like in these areas, it's an excessive amount of adipose tissue compared with this guy here. Well, the fat will be excessive everywhere in many parts of the body. And also there will be more fat in the greater momentum so if you look the greater momentum here in this picture will be this thick compared with the greater momentum in this other guy almost nothing or here in the middle one look this greater momentum is like this so sometimes that fat is hard to burn the one in the greater momentum and um, some people, it depends on genetics usually, some people lose weight, but they're, they still keep the belly. Especially guys that are called the beer belly. And they say, that's beer belly. You're probably you're married, that's why you have a belly, they say. <laughs> well, it's genetics. It's genetics. You gain weight, you gain weight, you gain fat, everywhere also in the greater momentum. Then you lose weight, but then you, your belly is still there plus the lack of exercise and the weakness of the abdominal muscles and then make it more evident. Well, that's a greater momentum. It is very important. We see it here again, greater momentum. Fallacy ligament is another fold of the peritoneum. And this falciform ligament is important because it is attaching the liver to the anterior abdominal wall. The liver is a very large organ and it needs to be uh, uh, held and connected attached, supported by, uh, by other structures. And this falciform ligament connects the liver, attaches to the anterior abdominal wall. Uh, and at the same time, it divides the liver in two lobes. The liver is all this. And the falciform ligament divides the liver in two lobes, the right lobe and left lobe. As we see here, falciform ligament that is attaching to the anterior abdominal wall. This is a dissected liver, where we see again, the falciform ligament here. And this is a view of a dissection where we see the falciform ligament. This guy is holding the falciform ligament here. That's the falciform ligament here, is the right lobe and left lobe of the liver. As a fold of the peritoneum. Lesser omentum. Lesser omentum, as the name says, is a short, small piece or fold of peritoneum that is located connecting the stomach and duodenum to the inferior edge of the liver. In the picture, the lesser omentum will be here connecting the stomach, duodenum to the liver. And in that lesser momentum, we have two blood vessels, hepatic portal vein and common hepatic artery that are entering, providing blood supply to the liver. The lesser momentum, another reflection of the peritoneum. Here we have both lesser momentum, all this, and the greater momentum, all this. The greater momentum It starts in the greater curvature of the stomach. So the visceral peritoneum that belongs to the stomach keeps going down and traps fat and then returns, making this fold of uh, of peritoneum. And if you see behind this, we see the transverse column, part of the large intestine, because that is another point of attachment of the greater omentum. Mesentery and mesocolon. Mesentery is just that stem fold at the base of the loop of the small intestine that is holding it, like here we see a small intestine, a loop, small intestine, a loop, and it is connected by this fold of the peritoneum to the posterior abdominal wall. That is the mesentery. That is the mesentery. Mesocolon, same idea, but for the large intestine. Mesentery, small intestine, mesocolon, large intestine. That's the mesentery. Sb, small bowel, and the mesentery will be all this. A folding of the peritoneum. In between the layers of the peritoneum there, we'll see a lot of blood vessels, arteries and veins. Uh, connecting to the small intestine. And this peritoneum, the parietal peritoneum lining the posterior abdominal wall, determines a space behind which is called the retroperitoneal space. So, here let me The line here, all this will be the parietal peritoneum. And behind, there is a space. And in that space, we will find some organs. Pancreas, duodenum, kidneys, ureters, adrenal glands. And these two big blood vessels, the aorta and inferior vena cava. These organs are in the retroperitoneal space. So when we open the abdominal cavity and we see all the intestines, large intestines, small intestines, stomach, everything, we don't get to see the kidneys, pancreas, or the aorta or inferior vena cava because they are behind the posterior peritoneum. We have to cut that membrane, and go behind to see them. This diagram is explaining a little bit how this looks. Um, this is the peritoneum that covers the posterior abdominal wall. And the rest of the wall, of the posterior wall, is being removed. We just cut a piece, a window. And we see those organs in the retroperitoneal space. The kidney, the inferior vena cava, the aorta. The pancreas is not here because it's being removed. But all these organs are in the retroperitoneal space. Okay, so let's move after studying the layers of the digestive tube and then the foldings, peritoneum that determines the cavities uh, and how the organs are arranged. Let's start the sequence of the digestive tube starting by the mouth. Mouth oral cavity is formed by the cheeks, both sides. The roof is the hard palate and soft palate and the floor of the oral cavity is determined by the tongue and muscles of the floor uh, of under the tongue. So, the heart palate can limit maybe, like here, all this is heart palate, the bone, maxilla and palatine bone, and then the soft palate is just muscles. Just muscles, but important muscles because they are going to work during the swallowing process. In between, we have the palatine tonsils located between the arches, called palatoglossal and palatopharyngeal, those pillars of muscles. The cheeks, that determine at some point between the teeth, and the cheeks, the gums or gingivae. The lips, covered by mucosa in the inner aspect that continues with the mucosa of the mouth and the teeth. The tongue, there is a folding of tissue under the tongue called the frenulum that limits the movement of the tongue. And under the tongue, we have openings for salivary glands. Submandibular gland opening is here. Salivary glands. Salivary glands are groups of cells arranged in three pairs the parotid gland. Submandibular and sublingual. They produce saliva, this fluid that is watery and with some mucus, a mucoid substance, and contains many important things that are used for the digestion process. Here we see where these salivary glands are located. They started with the parotid gland. The parotid gland is actually very superficial and it's in front of the ear, right under the skin, in front of the ear and on top of the masseter muscle, the muscle of mastication, the angle of the jaw. Crossing the masseter, we have the duct, the parotid duct, the one that brings the saliva from the gland to inside the mouth. And in the inner part of the cheek, we will see the opening of the parotid duct. That can be felt with the tongue here inside the cheek. You can feel like a little flap there. That is the place of the opening of the parotid duct. Other level of the second maxillary molar, if you want some specific place to describe it, that's the parotid gland. That's the largest of all three. The second is a submandibular, which can be easily palpated in the angle of the jaw, under the jaw. If you do this with your fingers, you can feel like a round thing here, right under the angle of the jaw. That is a submandibular gland. A little sensitive if you press too much. It does a place that sometimes hurts when you see like a delicious piece of chocolate cake with a lemonade, with ice, and you feel like zzzz. all the salivary glands are contracting. And it hurts, like here, with the submandibular glands. And sublingual, as the name says, under the tongue. But they are deeper, you cannot palpate these. They are very deep inside, right, under, very close to the base of the tongue. And the ducts are the submandibular, just in front of the tongue. And the sublingual gland sends many, many small ducts that open in both sides of the floor of the mouth. The tongue with other muscles forms the floor of the oral cavity, skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle. There is this bone that is always neglected located in the base of the tongue, which is the hyoid bone. That is the bone that attaches to most of these muscles of the tongue, the skeletal muscles. Very important for chewing, swallowing, and of course for speech. This is a place where the Papillae containing the taste buds we have studied that in nervous system special senses And the teeth It's also sometimes very neglected because It's the subject of a different specialist but during the physical examination sometimes people don't care much about the state of the teeth and it should be very important because sometimes People that don't have good digestion, they have intestinal problems, everything starts in the mouth. Imagine someone that doesn't have some teeth and is not able to chew the food properly, so uh, there will be more work for the stomach. Because in the mouth, you're supposed to chew and mix, and uh, there are some rules about it. When you read some places, they will tell you. There's no rules, actually, but there are recommendations that you count some numbers, in the meantime, you chew your food, and, and then you swallow it. Do not just put the mouth, um, food in your mouth and swallow, and swallow, and swallow, and swallow, just chewing very uh, little. This very important step. It helps in the mechanical digestion. The point of the mouth is to mix the food, is to mechanically process the food, so it will have more surface for action of enzymes and in the saliva we have the salivary amylase that will start the digestion of carbohydrates well, regarding the teeth this is the most this is the strongest material that we have in our body the NML calcium salts very very strong and the second layer underneath is dentin which is connective tissue, calcified connective tissue, but not so strong as the enamel. And then the deep layer is the pulp cavity. That is where nerves and blood vessels are. If someone has a cavity here, by the action of bacteria that happens when the infection or the bacteria digest the enamel, reaches the dentin, the dentin is highly sensitive. That is when you start feeling like sensitive, hypersensitive to cold temperature, hot temperature. That means that infection is reaching the dentin. It doesn't hurt yet, but it's very sensitive. But if the infection reaches the pulp cavity, then that hurts. And that's when you have a toothache because infection is here and this is a very enclosed space. And when the infection gets to here, In just a matter of hours, infection spreads all over, down the roots and everything is infected and the nerve here is compressed. That's what makes this very, very uh, painful. Now this tooth is attached to the bone. And this is a type of joint, this is called gonfosis. Gonfosis type of joint. Because you see a ligament here connecting the tooth to the bone. This has a specific name called periodontal ligament. And those ligaments can also be infected and sometimes people lose their teeth because of infection around. That is called periodontal disease. Yeah. When you get like your listen to you pulled out, like it rips it all out and your nerves just detach. Mm-hmm. And then it's um... Yeah. You just break it here. Just pull it out. Rip it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it do. And all of that series of teeth and uh, numbers, all this specialist uh a topic for the dentists to know this and kids deciduous is called the primary teeth that then will be replaced by the permanent, permanent teeth. And you see the different ages at which they are replaced. This may vary a lot. Usually we have a rule of 6-12, starting at 6 and ending at 12 years old. But that is just references. We can start very early. or can be take until Thirteen years old, wisdom teeth are the last third molar. They usually are buried under the gum, producing all this discomfort, and they have to be pulled out. So what happens in the mouth? Mechanical digestion: mixing the food with the saliva and form uh, what we call a bolus that is easy to be swallowed. Chemical digestion because this enzyme is present in the saliva, salivary amylase that converts polysaccharides to disaccharides. Polysaccharides to disaccharides, that's it. It won't get to monosaccharides. The amylase will turn the polysaccharides into disaccharides. That's, that's all it does. Next uh, week we have a lab on digestion, where we will work with chemicals, which will be polysaccharides, starch, and uh, amylase. We will measure the action of this enzyme in terms of time and the effect of different things like the pH, like the temperature, on the action of this enzyme. So this is a summary of the actions of these structures in the mouth. And then the pharynx. Pharynx is that part in between the mouth, oral cavity, and the esophagus. Pharynx is an important part for the swallowing process. It is covered by skeletal muscle. The walls are composed by skeletal muscle lined by the same epithelium stratified squamous. Um, and it connects to the esophagus. As we see here in this sagittal section of the head, the pharynx, which we we study pharynx in respiratory system because it serves both systems, digestive and respiratory. And in that occasion, we describe the nasopharynx, oropharynx, and laryngopharynx as the three areas of the pharynx. Well, the digestive system utilizes oral pharynx and laryngopharynx because when we swallow the food, the first movement is to push the food. The tongue actually pushes the food against the palate. That's the first movement. Second movement, the food pushed against the palate, soft palate, will stimulate the reflex and the reflex will make the pharyngeal muscles to contract and the swallowing process will start. Okay, we'll continue with swallowing and esophagus next time.